Hello, everyone. Uh, my name is Corey Shiroishi, and I've been at the Hallows for about seven years, along with my wife, Carissa, and our new baby boy, Theo. Uh, some of you may know that I was scheduled to preach back on June 12th, and I was trying to go early so that I wouldn't have to do all of this like sermon prep stuff with a baby here, uh, but it really seemed like Theo just wanted to hear me preach, and so he came a bit early, and we spent that morning in the hospital instead, and uh, so a delayed thank you to Peter for covering on really, really short notice. <laughs> anyway, uh, I'm excited to be here. Um, it's my first time preaching, uh, so, you know, pray for us. <laughs> uh, but in all seriousness, uh, let's, let's pray for our time here. Uh, Heavenly Father, may your name be glorified today in our worship, in the sermon, in the life of our church. May your will and your kingdom be made manifest here in the city and uh, the world beyond. Help us to clearly hear your word. Help us to follow your spirit. Help us to stay faithful to you and forgive us where we are faithless. In Jesus' name, amen. Okay, so... Today, we're going to be studying uh, Revelation 21, 1 through 8. And as I say that, some of you are probably thinking, wow, well, your first sermon, and you're going to go with uh, Revelation? Yeah, uh, I know. Um, but this has been a favorite passage of mine for a long time. Uh, many of you are probably familiar with verse 4 in particular, which is that God is going to wipe away all the tears from our eyes, and death and crying and pain are going to be no more. And so when things in my life didn't go, quite how I wanted, I would often turn to this verse and I remind myself that we have this wonderful hope in our future that we can look forward to. And that would kind of help pull me through hard times. But for as much as I have loved and enjoyed this passage for a long time, I also need to admit that I did not understand everything going on in it. And the reason why is because I didn't understand the fullness of the biblical story. And I didn't really know how to read well see what the Bible was saying here. All right. So there's, there's a lot more going on in these verses than we're going to have time to cover today. Uh, but I do want to show you guys how what's going on in this passage can change where we see where we're going, who we are, and what we ought to be doing now. So before we dig in, um, I don't assume that you know, everybody here is like really familiar with Revelation, so I just want to give a little bit of background. Um, Revelation is apocalyptic literature, and that's actually a genre that doesn't mean end of the world. Uh, it's where a heavenly messenger shows up and reveals, uh, Revelation reveals, uh, it reveals a highly symbolic vision of what's going on, uh, what's going on in the heavens uh, as well as on earth, and what's going to come to pass. Right? Now, since the vision is symbolic, it kind of begs this question. Where do the symbols come from? And to answer that, I want to read you a quote from a biblical scholar. Uh, his name is Dr. Michael Heiser. I would suggest if you're not steeped in the Old Testament, you don't have a prayer of understanding anything in the book of Revelation, period. Because when it comes to the book of Revelation, it's inescapable. It's everywhere. Oh, and newsflash, Revelation's not unique. All the New Testament books get into the Old Testament. So it's kind of obvious, right? Uh, the people who wrote scripture read scripture, right? Um, for example, if you remember Chase's sermon from a couple weeks back, uh, he, he was pointing out how when Jesus 
bent down and he wrote with his finger in the dirt, uh, how that was mirroring how God came down and he wrote the stone tablets at Sinai, right? So another thing to keep in mind is uh, the chapters and the verses that we use today, they were added about a thousand years after the books were written, right? So when a New Testament author wants to allude to the Old Testament, then how would they do it? Well, they would do it with just short keywords or with key phrases. It's kind of like how we can reference entire songs. Uh, yeah, we can reference entire songs or entire movies just by using a couple words. And that is why you should never gonna give up reading the Old Testament because it's never gonna let you down. And then you can run around and figure out what the New Testament authors are doing. And see, everybody, everybody gets it, right? You all get the point. Anyways, if, if you don't get it, I'll send you a totally legit link to this website. <laughs> it's gonna explain everything, I promise, right? <laughs> anyway, the reason why I bring this all up is because we're gonna be doing a lot of this. We're gonna be following the symbols into the Old Testament and seeing where that takes us, all right? Anyway, in, in this revelation, it's the final book of the Bible, uh, John receives a vision of Jesus, right? And Jesus first gives out seven letters to seven churches. And then he sees God's throne room, and he watches the series of seven seals being broken. And then there's seven trumpets blown and seven bowls that are poured out. And each event brings about this major cosmic event on earth. Right? And that all leads up to the end, where Jesus returns as the judge, and he destroys Satan and death and everyone who follows them. And at the end of all this, John is finally shown this vision of what comes after the judgment. And so that is where our passage is. And now we can dig in. So Revelation 21, 1 to 5. Then I saw a new heaven and a new earth, for the first heaven and the first earth had passed away, and the sea was no more. I also saw the holy city, the new Jerusalem, coming down out of heaven from God, prepared like a bride adorned for her husband. Then I heard a loud voice from the throne. Look, God's dwelling is with humanity, and he will live with them. They will be his peoples, and God himself will be with them and will be their God. He will wipe away every tear from their eyes. Death will be no more. Grief, crying, and pain will be no more, because the previous things have passed away. Then the one seated on the throne said, Look, I am making everything new. He also said, Right, because these words are faithful and true. So, how would you describe what Christians believe about what happens after death? Let me give you an example description. Uh, God sends good people to heaven, and he sends bad people to hell. And the problem is, we're all bad. Uh, yet, Jesus loved us enough to die for our sins, so if we believe in him, then he'll forgive us, and he'll send us to heaven for eternity instead. All right, is that an adequate description of what you believe? I think it's a pretty common script for a lot of modern uh, American Christianity. But scripture is going to give us a bit of a problem here. If the final destination of mankind is either heaven or hell, why does it say, why is there a new earth? Right? Then I saw a new heaven and a new earth, for the first heaven and the first earth had passed away. What is the point of a new earth if we're all just chilling in heaven? And why did the first heaven pass away, right? And there's more to it. 
the holy city, the new Jerusalem, coming down out of heaven from God, prepared like a bride adorned for her husband. All right, so if you've been to a Christian wedding before, you've probably heard the church is the bride of Christ. So this new Jerusalem, this is, this is the church, right? Why is it coming down out of heaven, right? That sounds kind of like it's leaving heaven, right? Not staying there, right? So if this is confusing to you, or if you've never thought about it before, it's probably because you, like me, didn't really have a full grasp of the storyline of the Bible, all right? And I, you know, honestly, at a few different churches, you know, growing up in college, here, this just never clicked. I never clicked for the first 28 years of my life. Uh, I didn't get it. I didn't even realize that I didn't get it. And my understanding of how the things end was just kind of muddy, right? So with this question in mind, kind of the problems that I put, put forth, we, if we're going to understand what this passage, what John is seeing or what is showing us, then we need to follow these symbols back into the Old Testament and kind of get to the bottom of what it is that John wants to tell us. So our first stop is going to be in Isaiah 65. Let me get some water. All right. So Isaiah 65, verse 17 to 25. For I will create new heavens and a new earth. The past events will not be remembered or come to mind. Then be glad and rejoice forever in what I am creating. For I will create Jerusalem to be a joy and its people to be a delight. I will rejoice in Jerusalem and be glad in my people. The sound of weeping and crying will no longer be heard in her. In her, a nursing infant will no longer live only a few days or an old man not live out his days. Indeed, the one who dies at a hundred years old will be mourned as a young man and the one who misses a hundred years will be considered cursed. People will build houses and live in them. They will plant vineyards and eat their fruit. They will not build and others live in them. They will not plant and others eat. For my people's lives will be like the lifetime of a tree. My chosen ones will fully enjoy the work of their hands. They will not labor without success or bear children destined for disaster. For they will be a people blessed by the Lord along with their descendants." Even before they call, I will answer. While they are still speaking, I will hear. The wolf and the lamb will feed together, and the lion will eat straw like cattle, but the serpent's food will be dust. They will not do what is evil or destroy on my entire holy mountain, says the Lord. So I think the links are pretty obvious, right? The new heavens and the new earth, right? Uh, it's kind of this end of the old and the past events not being remembered, God being with his people, there's no more crying, death is far away. Right? I think it's really obvious, John, you know, he was referencing Isaiah. Right? But then the question is, why? Right? Why is John referencing this, and how, how does this help us understand what John is trying to say back in Revelation? Right? Well, if we want to answer that, then we first really need to understand what Isaiah is saying on his own right. If you're familiar with the story of Israel, Right? God redeems this nation out of slavery. Right? They're slaves in Egypt, and through the Exodus, he, he takes them out, he makes a covenant with them, and he comes and he dwells with them in the tabernacle. And if they're faithful, then they'll receive blessings. And if they're not faithful, then they'll come under the curse of the law. And the end of that is exile. And more or less, outside of a couple of high points, 
most of the Old Testament is a story about how Israel is utterly unfaithful to God. And God continues to be patient with them and warn them until a certain point he says, all right, that's enough. And he removes his protection from them. And then the Babylonian Empire comes and destroys Jerusalem and all the people are either killed or taken into exile. So here in Isaiah, what we're reading is this prophecy of a time after the exile when God is going to bring his people back to Jerusalem and then all these wonderful things are going to happen, right? The horrific past events of the exile and everything caught up in there, that is not going to be remembered. But it also seems like there's more going on here, right? There's this promise, you know, to, to make a whole new heavens and a whole new earth. And that seems a lot bigger than the restoration of one people to a land in Palestine, right? So why, why does Isaiah mix these two things together, right? What's he doing? And it turns out that the key to understanding that is that Isaiah, too, is referencing his Bible. And if you've ever started a Bible in a year plan, then you've read the verse that he's referencing, right? Because it's the first place in the Bible that heaven and earth show up. It's actually the first place in the Bible. So it's Genesis 1.1. In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. Right? So we should be pretty familiar with the story. You know, heavens and earth is all of creation here. Right? It's the whole world that we live in. So God created everything. And throughout this chapter, God is going to fill the whole world with life. He's going to put it into order. Right? And he's going to fill it with his life and with goodness. And at the end, he, he creates man. And we read in verse 26... Then God said, let us make man in our image according to our likeness. They will rule the fish of the sea, the birds of the sky, the livestock, the whole earth, and the creatures that crawl on the earth. So God created man in his own image. He created him in the image of God. He created them male and female. God blessed them. And he said to them, be fruitful, multiply, fill the earth and subdue it. Rule the fish of the sea, the birds of the sky, and every creature that crawls on the earth. God also said, look, I have given you every seed-bearing plant on the surface of the entire earth and every tree whose fruit contains seed. This will be food for you for all the wildlife of the earth, for every bird of the sky and for every creature that crawls on the earth. Everything having the breath of life in it, I have given every green plant for food. And it was so. And God saw all that he had made. And it was very good indeed. Evening came and then morning the sixth day. So God creates humanity with his job right, to rule over the whole earth in his image, right, and we're blessed and we're given food, and it's all very, very good, but we know what happens next, right, so there's the fall, the servant tricks the woman, and rather than trusting and obeying God's rules, they make up their own, and they decide that the fruit, uh, the forbidden fruit is good in their own eyes, and both the man and the woman, they eat of it, and we see in Genesis 3:14 God's response, So the Lord God said to the serpent, because you have done this, you are cursed more than any livestock and more than any wild animal. You will move on your belly and eat the dust all the days of your life. I will put hostility between you and the woman, between your offspring and her offspring. He will strike your head and you will strike his heel. He said to the woman, I will intensify your labor pains. You will bear children with painful effort. Your desire will be for your husband, yet he will rule over you. And he said to the man, because you listened to your wife and ate from the tree about which I commanded you, do not eat from it. 
The ground is cursed because of you. You will eat from it by means of painful labor all the days of your life. It will produce thorns and thistles for you, and you will eat the plants of the field. You will eat bread by the sweat of your brow until you return to the ground, since you were taken from it. For you are dust, and you will return to dust. All right, so the serpent is cursed to eat the dust. And the woman now has this painful childbirth, and her relationship with her husband is broken, and the ground is cursed, and the man is now eating with painful labor, right? Work is hard, rather than just kind of enjoying the fruit of the land, right? And finally, humanity is doomed to die. This is the curse of death. But the final punishment comes just a couple verses later. Verse 23, So the Lord God sent him away from the Garden of Eden to work the ground from which he was taken. He drove the man out and stationed the cherubim and the flaming whirling sword east of the Garden of Eden to guard the way to the tree of life. So just like with Israel, the final punishment of Adam and Eve was exile. And with that story in mind, I want us to take another look at Isaiah 65. In verse 20, it says, A nursing infant will no longer live only a few days. All right, so think back to that curse on the woman, right? Birth, birth is painful. I just watched Carissa go through it. And wow, epidurals, thank God for those. <laughs> um, but can you imagine going through all of that, and then a couple days later, the baby dies? I can't imagine that. Uh, but there's a lot of people who know that, who've gone through that. Isaiah is saying that that is not going to happen anymore. And continuing on, no longer will an old man not live out his days. Indeed, the one who dies at 100 years old will be mourned as a young man. And in verse 23, it says, my people's lives will be like the lifetime of a tree. Right? So the curse on Adam and Eve was death. And Isaiah is saying that people are going to live for a long, long time. So it's as if there's no more death. And going on, they will not plant and others eat. They will fully enjoy the work of their hands. They will not labor without success. They will be a people blessed by the Lord. Right, so the curse on the land and the curse on labor, right, those are also gone. Isaiah is going through Genesis 3, and each part of the curse of the fall is being undone. And if you have any doubt that that's what Isaiah is doing, take a look at verse 25. By the serpent's food will be dust, right? Even the serpent's curse get mentioned, right? And interestingly, while humanity's curse is undone, that's not the case for the serpent. So Isaiah is taking the conclusion of the story of Israel and their exile, right? and he's mixing it with the conclusion of the story of humanity and our exile. So in effect, what he's saying is that just as Israel returns from exile, so also humanity will return from our exile from Eden, and the curse of death will be undone. And that is the great hope. Right. Well, this is a sermon on Revelation. So we'll take that, and let's, let's head back to Revelation. If you remember, a few weeks ago, Mark preached on Psalm 145, and he mentioned that it's a big chiasm. Right? And as a reminder, a chiasm is a pattern like A, B, C, B, A. Right? So it's kind of paired up, and it kind of drives your attention towards the middle, which gets emphasized. Right? Th those really happen everywhere across the whole Bible, and there's two in our passage. And this is the first one. So then I saw a new heaven and a new earth, 
was paired with, look, I am making everything new. And the first heaven and the first earth had passed away. It was paired with, the previous things have passed away. The sea was no more, death will be no more, grief, crying, and pain will be no more. That one might be confusing, right? But if you look at how the sea is used symbolically in the flood, in the Red Sea, in the Exodus, Jonah being tossed in the sea, and even in the New Testament, we're baptized into Christ's death. The sea is consistently being used as a symbol of chaos and disorder and death. And that's why it's being taken away. God is getting rid of the chaotic waters and all chaos, just as he gets rid of death and pain. And if you've got that story from Isaiah in mind, right, it makes a lot more sense to think of this as the end of death rather than like getting rid of the Pacific Ocean and there's no more surfing or something like that. Right? So finally, we get to the center of the chiasm. And what do we get? We get, we get a picture of God coming to be with us again. So God's dwelling is with mankind. So altogether, what is this describing? What is, what is John seeing? What is he explaining to us? He's describing that after the judgment is the end of the exile from Eden. After Jesus returns, we go back into the place where God dwells with humanity on earth. And there's no more curse. There is no more exile. All of creation is made new. So this, this is the story of the Bible. It's the story that we're a part of, right? God didn't rescue Israel, send Jesus and do all that just so we can escape and go to some ethereal heaven kind of up in the sky. Rather, it was to make all of creation new, heaven and earth, and then to live with us here. In the beginning, God said the world he made was very good, and he is going to make it very good again. So some of you might be catching on. Wait a minute. Are you, are you trying to say that I won't go to heaven when I die? And I just want to say, kind of, right? Kind of. The faithful will go to heaven, but what we see is they won't stay there. We'll come back to earth, and God will dwell with us, heaven on earth, here. And this is actually what Christians have always believed. It's why the Apostles' Creed, right, one of the early creeds of the faith, ends with the forgiveness of sins, the resurrection of the body, and the life everlasting. It doesn't say the forgiveness of sins, then float up to heaven and stay there forever. Right? The resurrection of the body is not talking about Jesus, because Jesus gets his own section in the creed, and it already mentioned that he rose from the dead. Right? It's talking about us, the resurrection of our bodies. Right? And that for that phrase, the life everlasting, the Nicene Creed would go on to expand on it, and they would say that specifically it's the life of the world to come. Right? And frankly, you know, we tend to use going to heaven language so much that, honestly, for most of my life, I thought the resurrection of the body was talking about Jesus. Uh, and I'm not alone because I've asked around. And some of you are probably thinking about this stuff for the first time. Right? So if we want to use the phrase going to heaven as a shorthand way of talking about the resurrection you know, to this new creation where God dwells with us, I think that's okay. Just be aware that in the ears of a lot of people who hear you, they're probably going to replace that new earth with that kind of vague spiritual place with angels and harps and clouds and maybe like a big, big house where we can play football. All of the 90s Christian kids just laughed, right? <laughs> okay, so a lot of you might be thinking, all right, Corey, I'm on board, but um, 
You know, technically this, this eternal destination isn't an otherworldly heaven, but honestly, the new creation that you're describing sounds pretty heavenly, and I mean, what's, what's the difference? It just seems like semantics, right? Like, why are you making such a big deal about it? Why, why should I care? And I think that's a great question. And I think we're gonna see why in the second half of our passage. So keep that in mind, and let's continue. Another quick water break. All right, Revelation 21, six through eight. Then he said to me, it is done. I am the Alpha and the Omega, the beginning and the end. I will freely give to the thirsty from the spring of the water of life. The one who conquers will inherit these things, and I will be his God, and he will be my son. But the cowards, faithless, detestable, murderers, sexually immoral, sorcerers, idolaters, and all liars, their share will be in the lake that burns with fire and sulfur, which is the second death. All right, so this section has another short chiasm, right? So we have the thirsty who receive from the spring of the water of life, and then we have the sinful receiving from the lake of the fire of death. Right? These two are paired, right? and they're, they're contrasting responses that we could have to Jesus. But the centerpiece, right, the place that, that the author is focusing our attention is verse 7. The one who conquers will inherit these things, and I will be his God, and he will be my son. All right, so we are going to focus on this middle section. So the first question is, who is the one who conquers? And we actually don't even have to go to the Old Testament. We see this term early in Revelation. So in that seven letters to the seven churches, we see, for example, in, in Revelation 2, 7, let anyone who has ears to hear listen to what the Spirit says to the churches. To the one who conquers, I will give the right to eat from the tree of life, which is in at the paradise of God. All right, so we don't need to read them all, but each letter to each church is going to end similarly with this call to listen and the promise of a blessing to the one who conquers. It's really clear here that the one who conquers is someone who stays faithful to Jesus through the end, through all the different circumstances that those churches are facing. Right? So let's take the one who conquers and go back to our passage. The one who conquers or remains faithful to Jesus will inherit these things, and I will be his God, and he will be my son. All right, so the next question is, what does it mean? I will be his God, and he will be my son. So as modern people, reading this, you know, 2,000 some odd years later, we can be tempted to just kind of read in our own culture to these passages. And we could say like, oh, God is a father to me, and that means he loves me, and he takes care of me. But that would be a mistake here. We shouldn't be thinking in terms of our own culture and own symbolism, but rather theirs. Right? Remember, if we're not soaked in our Old Testament, we don't have a prayer of understanding this. So it turns out that he will be my son is actually an Old Testament reference. And it's a reference to one of the most crucial moments in Israel's history. I'm talking about 2 Samuel 7. All right? A few months ago, uh, we finished a study of 1 Samuel, and so we should know the story of Saul and of David. right? But by 2 Samuel, David has become the king. And when he becomes the king, he decides to move the Ark of God's presence into Jerusalem, which he had just conquered, and he offers tons and tons of sacrifices, and he's acting like a priest, and he's dancing around, and he's praising God, and he's blessing the people, and he's just handing out free food to everybody, and, and out of his thankfulness, David says that he wants to build God a house or a temple. And God's basically like, thanks, but no. 
And in that moment, God says this instead. In verse, um, starting in verse 11, the Lord declares to you, the Lord himself will make a house for you. When your time comes and you rest with your ancestors, I will raise up after you your descendant who will come from your body and I will establish his kingdom. He is the one who will build a house for my name and I will establish the throne of his kingdom forever. I will be his father and he will be my son. When he does wrong, I will discipline him with a rod of men and blows for mortals, but my faithful love will never leave him, as I did when I removed it from Saul, whom I removed from before you. Your house and kingdom will endure before me forever, and your throne will be established forever. So this is called the Davidic Covenant, right? And it's this promise that a royal son of David would rule forever, right? And God says, this son of David will also be God's son. Right? And this promise is a major source of hope for Israel, and it shows up everywhere in the Bible, everywhere. And we're going to take a look at two places. For instance, we see it in Psalm 2, where God says in uh, verse 6, I have installed my king on Zion, so that's Jerusalem, my holy mountain. I will declare the Lord's decree. He said to me, you are my son. Today I have become your father. Ask of me, and I will make the nations your inheritance and the ends of the earth your possession. You will break them with an iron scepter, and you will shatter them like pottery. All right, so it's talking about the rule of God's chosen king, who's called God's son. And God says that royal son is going to rule over all the nations that rebel against God. And in verse 2, up earlier, it says that that royal son is also called God's anointed one, a.k.a. his Messiah, a.k.a. his Christ. This royal son idea is also in the New Testament. So Matthew starts his gospel with a genealogy, right? So the New Testament starts with a genealogy. And he, and the point he's making is that Jesus is the royal son of David. He says in, in verse 1-1, an account of the genealogy of Jesus Christ, the son of David, the son of Abraham, right? And here, Matthew is saying in a very Jewish way that Jesus is the anointed one, he is the Christ. He is the promised heir to the eternal throne. Jesus is a Davidic king who will reign forever as God promised to David. And this is the idea that's being referenced back in Revelation 21.7. It's the royal son of God. The one who conquers will inherit these things and I will be his God and he will be my royal son. Wait a minute. Wait, who is it that is being made a son of God? The ones who conquer were people in the seven churches who remained faithful to Jesus, right? So it reads like, to the one who conquers or remains faithful to Jesus, he will be my royal son. Does that sound like we are being made into kings? And to be clear, lest anyone be confused, I'm not trying to say that we are being made into the second person in the Trinity. That is not what's going on here. Nope. But the kingly role is being entrusted to the faithful believers. And some of you might think, well, that's kind of weird. I don't know. We're going to be kings. I, I don't know about that, Corey. That, that, um, this, that doesn't, that's not what this passage intuitively means to me. Right? But we're reading this 2,000 years later in a very different language, in a culture, and time. Right? So remember what we covered earlier. If you're not steeped in the storyline and the motifs of the Old Testament, you're going to have trouble here. Right? And if some of you are still on the fence, and you're like, I don't know, this isn't the only place where this idea comes up. 
If you keep reading this final vision that John has, it ends in Revelation 22:5, where it says, Night will be no more. People will not need the light of a lamp or the light of a sun, because the Lord God will give them light, and they will reign forever and ever. They will reign forever and ever. Who's the they? The they is us. And it's not just in this final vision. When Jesus sends the letters to the seven churches, he says in Revelation 2, 26, the one who conquers and who keeps my works to the end, I will give him authority over the nations. And he will rule them with an iron scepter. He will shatter them like pottery. So authority over the nations is given to the believers who conquer, who stay faithful. Oh, and do you recognize that iron scepter smashing the pottery? We read that earlier. That was Psalm 2 the psalm where God sets up his chosen king. And if that's not clear enough, Jesus writes to another church in 321, to the one who conquers, I will give the right to sit with me on my throne, just as I also conquered and sat down with my father on his throne. So it's pretty clear throughout Revelation, right? God is sharing his rule with us. And it's not just in Revelation, Paul also thinks this is really obvious. And he chastises the Corinthian church because they're not acting like good rulers. He says in 1 Corinthians 6, Or don't you know that the saints will judge the world? And if the world is judged by you, are you unworthy to judge the trivial cases? Don't you know that we will judge angels? How much more matters of this life? Yeah, don't you know that you'll judge angels? Like, didn't you learn that in Sunday school? All right, that's actually a really big rabbit trail that we do not have time for. But um, even still, this is not just a New Testament thing. This idea goes all the way back to Genesis 1, verse 26. And God said, let us make man in our image, according to our likeness. They will rule the fish of the sea, the birds of the sky, the livestock, the whole earth, and the creatures that crawl on the earth. God blessed them, and God said to them, be fruitful, multiply, fill the earth, and subdue it. Rule the fish of the sea, the birds of the sky, and every creature that crawls on the earth. So this is the story of the Bible. God made mankind in his image so he could share his rule over the whole earth with us. And then we blew it. Right? And we're still blowing it. But God loved humanity enough that he didn't want to give up on us. So he came, and he died, and he conquered sin and death and is purifying us so that he can dwell in us through the Holy Spirit, and restore us. And in the end, God will renew the world and resurrect a people so he can share his rule with us again. And we will be with him, and we will walk according to his ways as it was supposed to be in Eden. And so this is the answer to why it matters that our eternal destiny is a new earth. Because earth is the place that God entrusted us to rule in the first place. Right? God isn't saving us so that we can escape from our job right? and just you know, get out of this world and chill out and have fun in the clouds for eternity. He's saving us so that we can fulfill the role that he gave us in the beginning. So, a question for you all. If our job was to rule way back at the beginning, and that's going to be our job for eternity, what do you think we're supposed to be doing now? Have you thought about that? Do you do it? Or are you living your life like, well, I've got this Jesus ticket, so I'm going to heaven, and in the meantime, I'm just going to try and enjoy this life as much as possible. Right? I'm going to make some money, get a good career, go on some trips. I'm going to be happy. I'm going to eat some nice food, you know, have a good retirement. 
And I suppose God, you know, wants me to be a nice person while I'm at it. So yeah, like I'll, I'll show up to church, maybe give some money, and uh, maybe I'll just watch the live stream, actually. It's a bit easier. And maybe I'll update my profile picture for some nice cause. That is neglecting your job. Right? Living according to our own ways and doing what's right in our own eyes is how we messed up the world in the first place. And we, we have become, all of human history shows, we have become many tyrants. Right? We kill and we steal. Right? We lie. Oh, we, we kill and we steal. We pollute and we destroy. We corrupt and we exploit. And we self-justify and we lie and we cover it up. But through the Holy Spirit, God wants to transform us. He wants to shape us into people who can rule in a new creation and not mess it up again. Let's talk about what that rule looks like. And the first point, and this is really, really important, is realizing that this new earth is God's kingdom, first and foremost. Right? Jesus sits on the throne above all else. And he's called the king of kings. He's the lord of lords. Right? We don't have independent little kingdoms where we just go off and do what we want, but we reign in Christ and we are participating in his rule. He chooses to share it with us. It was his gift to us in the beginning. Right? And this point is really important because if you're not a Christian, and you're here and you're, you're not loyal to Jesus the king and you're thinking, well, I haven't been that bad, so God shouldn't punish me with hell, so he should let me into heaven, right? And, you know, that's missing the point. Because God is coming to restore the world, right? He's going to remove that chaos, right? He's going to make it new. And when he comes, if you don't want to submit to the king of kings, how can you fit in? Right? You can't put an active insurrectionist into the government. That is adding to the chaos, not removing it. You don't put someone who only pays lip service to the kingdom and then basically does nothing and sits there, you know, is completely unfaithful and refuses to do anything whatsoever. Right? That, that is chaos. Right? But the crazy part of the gospel is this, that while we were in rebellion against him, God came among us to reconcile with us, and he invites us to repent. He invites us to be made clean from our corruption and our sin and be changed by his power through the Holy Spirit. Right? And that's the invitation that's open to anyone. And, and if we're faithful to the end, then we will be made fully new in the resurrection, unhindered by our sins, able to rule and reign in that new creation without causing any more de death, any more tears, or any more pain. But all of that starts with submitting to the king. So the next point is that we reign by reflecting God's image and character. And this is important because if you were somehow thinking that I'm suggesting we start a rebellion, remember that when Jesus had a conflict with the Romans, what he did was he let him kill him. Right? So if we read Genesis closely, we'll see that our reign was tied to being made in God's image. Right? So we are supposed to be spreading his goodness, manifesting his character. Right? We don't just pray, your kingdom come, your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. We also do God's will on earth as in heaven. All right, so living out Jesus' teaching isn't some sort of optional add-on that we do, right? After we've gotten this magical ticket to heaven, just, you know, because we're thankful. It's actually the job description for the role that God is preparing you for, right? 
So, love God and love your neighbors. Act justly. Love mercy. Walk humbly with your God. Look after the orphans and the widows in their distress. Feed the poor and the hungry. Walk in a way worthy of the calling with all humility, gentleness, patience, bearing with each other in love, keeping the unity of the Spirit through the bond of peace. And of course, confess your sins to one another and pray for one another, right? Because honestly, we don't do this perfectly, even if we are trying to be faithful. So the challenge to all of you is to think about how you can bring order and peace and goodness, God's characteristics, his character, you know, his love to the world around you and to the people near you, right? Is by living in this way with our prayers, our repentance, and our love that we are spreading God's image, right? And we are beginning to participate in God's coming kingdom. God's coming kingdom, that goes into my third point, which is that we are ultimately waiting for God's rule to be consummated on earth, right? And this is important for those of you who are being faithful, but you're weary and you're tired, right? You're tired by this world. You're tired by the sinfulness of your own flesh, right? We should look forward to the day when Jesus returns and he makes all things new, when the tears are wiped away, when death is no more, and we are with Jesus in the new creation, right? And we don't know, we don't know what day that, that day will be. We don't know when that day will come. But God will not be late. So in the meantime, don't be tempted to turn aside to other kingdoms, thinking that they are going to fix what's broken in the world. Don't put your trust in golden calves or golden donkeys or golden elephants. The world is not going to be made new by higher taxes or lower taxes or by social reforms because you can't educate away human sin. And you can't fix it with a legal system even if it is given by God. Just ask Israel about that one. The world is not going to be made new by human progress or some technological utopia. And these things can do some good, but usually the first thing that we do with science is we blow up Hiroshima or we put all of the world's porn in our pockets. The world is not going to be fixed until Jesus returns. So until then, the call is to continue in hope and in faithfulness, waiting for Jesus to come and to finally set the whole world right, knowing that when he does, he will set us right, and we will rise, and we will reign with him. And with that, let's pray.